The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of the Psalms. Psalm 146, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 10 this evening, which is the entire psalm. The word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the book of Acts. We're going to begin at verse 16 this evening. I think it would be helpful for you to have a bit of background information for Paul's very famous speech on Mars Hill. So we're going to begin at verse 16. Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. We'll be reading through verse 34, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of our God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think about the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. But times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's Word for our evening sermon. Boston is a fantastic city. Uh, You know, this is one of those areas where perhaps familiarity might not breed contempt, but it can cause us to kind of lose sight of just what an extraordinary city we live just north of and where some of you actually work day in and day out. But, you know, people come to Boston from all over the world for the premier educational institutions, for medical care, for culture, for the symphony, uh, perhaps even just a walk around a bit and enjoy the history of the city, and then eat in the North End. And I think it would be wise for us sometimes to put on those glasses, those lenses of a tourist, and go look at what's right next to us, and just marvel at what a great city we live just to the north of. Of course, this is true of great cities all over the world. If you as a tourist were to go to London or Paris or New York City, you could easily become overwhelmed at the riches of culture, at these great centers of commerce and learning that have meant so much to the world throughout many generations. The same thing was perhaps even more true in the ancient world. Uh, One of the advantages of the modern world is um, modern media, and particularly the internet, has spread culture everywhere. But you know, in Paul's day, uh, if you wanted to understand what was going on in Rome, the truly great city of that day, you actually had to go there. And it's not like you could just dial up on your TV or on the internet screen and watch a concert being done in um, Athens or a, a play being done in some major city in Egypt like Alexandria. You physically had to be there. And so in the course of his travels, Paul's on a missionary journey. He ends up in Athens. Now, it does seem that Paul did not have a particular missionary plan for Athens. He had left um, Timothy and Silas in Thessalonica, and he's getting ready to go to Corinth, and he's simply waiting for Timothy and Silas to come and meet him so he could travel on his way. So think about the Apostle Paul. He's brilliant. He's one of the best educated men of his day, and there he is in Athens. Now, Athens wasn't a great city like Rome, but it was the city that was renowned for its incredible learning. And we could just imagine Paul traveling around Athens as a tourist, as it were, and thinking about Plato and Aristotle and the the, the great poets and Pindar and the sculptors and all the great culture that came out of Greece. And he would just be in second heaven there. He would just be loving it, right? But that's not what Paul does. As Paul wanders around the city of Athens, instead of being impressed with Athens, verse 16 tells us that Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Uh, R.C. Sproul makes, I think, a helpful observation about Athens and about human culture in general. 
He points out that the city that had been the high cultural watershed of the ancient world had reached no higher than the depths of crass idolatry. Paul was provoked by it. As Paul would later write to the Corinthians, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who were called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, Paul, of course, knew this truth. Right? He knew it before he wrote 1 Corinthians. But as he traveled around the city that was famed for its culture, it provoked him deeply in his spirit to realize that these people who had created so much that was beautiful and meaningful and had so much insight into human emotions were given over to crass idolatry, and it bothered him deeply. We'll say this week, as I was considering this passage, I was a bit convicted by this, by how unprovoked I am in my day-to-day life. The truth is, as I travel through the idolatry that's all around us, and for the most part, just being honest, I'm kind of content to let people go on their merry way. I I don't stop them to proclaim the gospel to them unless I have a sense that I have a particularly good opportunity to do so, an opening, a conversation that is bridged to that place. And furthermore, I sometimes walk around through the idolatry of our day and I don't even stop to pray that God would open their hearts and minds to see the truth of who he is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. But when Paul was provoked by the idolatry of Athens, he did something about it. Verses 17 and 18. Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said... What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, for Paul, and hopefully for us, it didn't matter whether he was in what we might call a blue-collar neighborhood or a really poor neighborhood, or he's talking to the elite of the world. Paul was going to tell them about Jesus and the resurrection, because there is only one gospel. I remember hearing uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, often known as Dr. Lloyd-Jones, he was a medical doctor before he became a a minister, and he'd become quite famous as a preacher in England. He was a fantastic preacher. He was invited to speak to graduate students at Oxford. And Dr. Jones went and proclaimed the gospel to them. And afterward, there was a time of question and answer. And the very first question he was asked was really kind of a put-down more than a question. It was Dr. Jones. uh, I mean, what you said is all nice and all. But, you know, the message you gave us, you could have given to a bunch of eighth graders. Don't you understand? But these are graduate students at one of the world's great universities. Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, I didn't know anything about being a graduate student that meant that you don't need to be saved by, from sin the same way that eighth graders are. That was Paul's message. He adjusted how he talked about it based on his audience. We're going to see that in just a moment. But the message itself remained the same. We are not at all surprised that Paul would begin in the synagogue, both with the Jews and the God-fearers, But as he moved out into the marketplace, he began to openly converse with the Athenian philosophers as well. Luke mentions two groups of philosophers, and these are the dominant ones that would have been in Athens at this time. Um, Paul's actually confronting three groups, though. That should be obvious as well. Not simply the philosophers, but those who actually 
in some way are following the traditional Greek pagan religious practices. Uh, after all, that's how he begins his speech, talking about all the idols that are scattered, the altars that are scattered throughout the city. So first, there were those who took their Greek religion seriously. Second, there were the Epicureans. And third, there were the Stoics. Taken together, these three worldviews are remarkably like the worldview of your non-Christian neighbors here in North America. Remarkably so. Perhaps more so than any intervening period in Western history. Turns out that pursuing the truth uh, was something that was once really important in Athens. Plato was pursuing truth. The truth about love, the truth about friendship, the truth about being. And Aristotle, in his own way, was also pursuing the truth. But it turns out that pursuing the truth is really hard. It takes a lot of work. And uh, people keep questioning whether or not you found it. And so most people quickly give up on pursuing the truth, and instead they simply want a bit of happy advice on how they can live their lives a little bit better or be happier in this moment where they can't find meaning anyway. The people in Athens had largely given up searching for truth with a capital T. They began to look for pragmatic ways to simply live an enjoyable life. Well, the Epicureans and Stoics did this in a slightly different way. Uh, the Epicureans, they did believe in gods of a sort, but they believed in gods who were far away and not involved in this world. In, in the modern West, we often talk about deists, but the deists are simply a variation off these Epicureans. And so the Epicureans, they kind of believe in a higher power or higher powers, but they don't think they're involved in this world. And so the way that they wanted to create a, a good life or a reasonably good life with some happiness is they sought moderation. Kind of ironically, we tend to use the term Epicurean for someone that has really fine taste in food. Um, they, they would have enjoyed that. They enjoyed good meals. They enjoyed the nice things in life. But actually, their emphasis was on moderation. When you get out on the extremes, trying to pursue something that's really good or really bold, or taking stands for things because, you know, you just think your government shouldn't do X, Y, or Z, well, then you get into conflict, and those conflicts will rob you of joy. So the Epicureans tried to stay in the middle, and to the degree that they believed in gods at all, they thought they were far away and uninvolved in human life. This is now the default worldview of large swaths of Western civilization, uh, most of your neighbors who are not Christians, they still sort of believe in a general higher power. Very vague. A general higher power who's not actually so involved in their day-to-day -day lives. What's going to happen tomorrow and next week and the week after that depends on them, their plans, their schemes. Right? God exists, there's a power, but far away, uninvolved in this world. Large swaths of Western civilization are now essentially Epicurean, simply trying to find a bit of joy in this world where there isn't a great deal of meaning. The ancient Stoics, by contrast, held to an essentially deterministic view of the world. That is, the world is really set on a fixed course and you can't do anything about it. But what you can control is how you react to it. You can't change events, but you can change your own attitude. Are you calm about it? Do you accept things with equanimity? That's a very Stoic idea. Now, there's always been a bit of Stoic-like ideas in American culture, but we're actually living through a type of renaissance, if you can call it that, of Stoicism. If you go on Amazon.com and type in Stoic or Stoics, you're going to find there are hundreds and hundreds of books Many of them written at a popular level. These are not just academics discussing ancient Greek philosophy. These are books that are saying these ancient Greeks knew something. They can help you to live a happy or more successful life. Now, even though they'll say more successful, what they really mean is happy because you can't actually change the world anyway, but you can change the way you react to it. 
Not surprisingly, as Paul begins announcing the gospel among these three groups, there is both interest and controversy. In verses 19 and 20, we are told that they took him, that is Paul, and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Uh, The older version of the ESV that I read to you this evening, because there's actually two slightly different versions, puts it like this. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus. I want you to notice that they're not inviting him to a social event. He has to go. They're they're laying hold of the Apostle Paul, and they're bringing him somewhere. Now, part of the reason why we can miss the force of this is it's easy for us to think of the Areopagus as a well-cultured philosophical society where people would go and just discuss ideas. But the Areopagus is a court. It's not a court like we often think of as a legal court where you're going to get tried for, like, um, robbing a store. None of you would do that. It's the court in Athens that governed morals and religion. They took it very seriously. Their responsibility was to control the morals and the religion of the city. Now, we shouldn't think that Paul's arrested here, even though they're compelling him to come. Um, It's a very strong invitation. He does have to show up, but he's not giving a legal defense here for himself. But this court has real authority. If they do not like what he says, they can have him arrested. And so Paul is giving this before an official body of philosopher judges. And you have to think about it that way, because as philosopher judges, they were in fact interested in what Paul had to say. As we read in verse 21, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So this very highly educated Jews traveling around the Mediterranean shows up in Athens. They want to hear from him. He has interesting things to say. But they also understand that if he's going to promote foreign religions, you know, they were famously syncretistic. They weren't concerned he was going to announce some little minor god from Egypt. But a substantially different new religion could be utterly subversive to their culture. This is not like modern America, although that's changing to some degree, where we were getting uh, away from free speech. But the idea, well, you know, religion doesn't really matter too much. Everyone can believe what they want. They understood that if people took religion seriously, a foreign religion could subvert their whole society. So you have to keep both of those aspects in mind. So if you are called to give an account for yourself in front of a religious court made up of some of the most sophisticated philosophers and thinkers of your day, what do you say? Now, the obvious point is, is none of you are going to be brought into a religious court, right? We don't even have one of those right now. But you have to talk to your unbelieving neighbors, not only you have to, you get to, your unbelieving neighbors who actually share a lot of these worldviews. Some of them are superstitious. Right? They're just worshiping whatever they don't know. Um, others of them are more philosophical, and they're seeking joy and happiness for themselves by you know, how they react to everything. Most of them think that that higher power is far away and not very involved in this world. How do you talk to them about Jesus Christ? Although Paul's message is brilliant in many ways, it is not complicated. Paul does not try to wow these great thinkers with his eloquence. Rather, he simply does three things. First, Paul declares the truth about God. Second, Paul declares the truth about man. And third, Paul attempts to declare the truth about the God-man. I say attempts because it seems pretty clear that when Paul gets to talking about Jesus and the resurrection that the uh, hearing, as it were, his speech, as it were, gets cut short. But that's where Paul wants to go. He wants to tell them about God, and in particular, about who Jesus is. 
Uh, this can be a wonderful pattern for us to follow when we talk to the educated pagans and the educated agnostics of our own day. As I say, none of us is likely to get dragged into any sort of court about this, and certainly we don't have a religious court to be dragged into. But the type of people that Paul was addressing are very similar in this part of their worldview to many in modern Western culture. And so we have a great deal to learn from the apostle of the, to the Gentiles as he presents the gospel. Let me just give you Paul's approach once again. It's simple, but it's helpful. Paul tells them the truth about God. Paul tells them the truth about man. And then Paul attempts to tell them the truth about the God-man. Now, you might be wondering why he doesn't just start with Jesus. Right? Jesus died for your sins. Believe in him. You know that would be absolutely pointless if they don't understand who God is. And what difference does it make to tell someone that Jesus is God if that person thinks of God as Zeus or Mars, right? Or they think of God as a vague force that's far removed from us or a rationalistic spirit like the, the, the Stoics do who's impersonal. We actually do that without thinking about it. We're so used to using that language about God that we forget that when I say God and my neighbor thinks God, he's not thinking what I'm thinking when I say it. And I think it's important for us to realize, therefore, that we often need to start by helping people understand who God is before we explain to them who Jesus is. So Paul begins by telling them the truth about the true and living God. Look at verses 22 and 23 with me. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, Paul begins with a point of contact. That's very helpful in doing evangelism, right? You start with something where you can both talk about the same thing. And so he starts with the fact that they've created all these altars. And he picks one in particular. It's kind of ideal here. They have an altar to the unknown God, which means they're confessing. We don't know who this God is. And Paul says, him... I'm going to declare to you. But we should step back and remind ourselves a bit about pagan religion. Pagan religions did not focus on the ethical lives of the worshipers. You know, you could be a totally faithful worshiper of Mars and go and cheat on your wife. It was totally irrelevant. Furthermore, pagan religions didn't involve a loving relationship of trust and loyalty between the god and the worshiper. Pagan religion is simply quid pro quo. It makes it really simple, actually. Um, the idea would be something like this. Uh, you're going to go out to war. You offer sacrifices to Ares, God of war. He'll help you win your battles. Uh, you want good crops. You offer sacrifices to Demeter, the, the, the goddess of um, agriculture and harvest. And, and if you get her attention, she'll help you have good crops. And so on. You just run down the line of all the various gods and goddesses. And the idea worked like this. You're basically paying the gods. By the way, the gods got hungry. You actually literally were feeding gods, right? And, and so if you fed a god who was hungry, they might reward you later on. You'd be in trouble, they'd come and help you. Here's the problem with that sort of system, besides the fact it's totally untrue. It's actually a religion that's plagued with insecurity. Because how do you know you've appeased the right gods? Particularly since these gods sometimes fight with each other. You might be getting on one side, and the other god's going to come along and smack you across the side of the head. What happens if you forget to offer sacrifices to one of the gods because you don't even know who they are? Well, you could be in serious trouble. That unknown god could come along and wreck your life. And remember, your ignorance is no excuse because they don't care. It's all about you, quid pro quo, doing something for them. And so the Athenians actually said, well, we got to take care of that. And they erect an altar to the unknown God. In case anyone out there, you know, you get this sometimes in foxhole prayers, 
people nominally come from Christian backgrounds, God, if you're up there and you answer my prayer, I'll go to Mass every week for the rest of my life if you get me out of this foxhole. But that's not a prayer to a true and living God. That's simply a superstitious approach that I'm in trouble and there's someone out there. That's what the Athenians were doing when they erected an altar to an unknown God. Paul says, what therefore you worship is unknown. You could even say this a bit more strongly. What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now keep in mind that this court, it was a court of philosopher judges. It was a court with Epicureans and Stoics on it. It wasn't primarily made up of the hoi polloi who were out there offering up food at the altar to the unknown God. And at this point, I think we can imagine that many of the Epicureans and Stoics are kind of going with Paul. You know, they were quiet about it. They didn't want to get themselves in trouble, but they were not at all happy with all the superstition that was going on around them in popular Greek religion. After all, if the gods are far away and uninvolved in the affairs of mankind, as the Epicureans thought, there isn't any point of building altars and offering sacrifices to them. Likewise, if the higher power is simply an impersonal logic or rationality, um, what's the point of worshiping that either? As the Stoics would say. So I think the Stoics and the Epicureans, these philosopher judges, may have been happy if Paul were then to go on to talk about how superstitious the common people were. They could have gotten together and looked down upon the common people and had a bond by making fun of them. But that is not what the Apostle Paul does. Before we see how Paul proclaims the God whom they do not know, let me ask you, where would you start? Where would you start? Where do you start when you're talking to your neighbors who don't know God? They might use the word, but they don't know who God is or what he's like. I'll tell you a little bit of a story here. Um, I remember... 23 years or so ago, um, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright came out with a book called The Challenge of Jesus. Uh, Professor Wright looked around the British world and he realized most people don't really know who Jesus is. I mean, they celebrate Christmas, they say Jesus, but their content that they have and the content the Bible has, they don't match up at all. And so in this book, writing to people who don't know who Jesus is, he thought it was important to explain who God is. Right? He says, first we have to come to understand what we mean when we say God, biblically. And I cannot tell you how many professors and how many OPC ministers, yes, OPC ministers, mocked N.T. Wright for doing this. And I heard him say things like, who does this guy think he is? He's the only guy that knows anything. He's writing like, I don't know who God is. And I thought how incredibly naive that was. Because N.T. Wright did not write this book for seminary professors and OPC ministers. He was writing it for rank-and-file people in Britain, many of whom did not know who God is or what he is like. Now, this is one of those areas where the British tend to be about 20, 30 years ahead of us. But now, 23 years later, this is true of your neighbors. Many of your neighbors who say God, including many of your neighbors who might have grown up as nominal Roman Catholics, which is very common in our area, they say God and they just mean some vague higher power. They're not thinking of the God who created everything, who governs every single detail that happens in the universe. They are not thinking of a God who is completely holy, and therefore, when you tell them that Jesus will save them from their sins, they're going, yeah, sins, you know, no one's perfect. Because they don't know who God is. We need to be able to take that ourselves and make sure they know who the God is that we are calling them to follow and to worship. Now, if we go tell people who think like these ancient philosophers, but like most of our neighbors, that Jesus is God or that Jesus died for their sins, they will have very little idea of what we are talking about, even though those words are absolutely vital. They first need to have at least the major points about who God is firmly in mind 
before they can even grasp what a big deal sin is and why we need the Son of God to save us from it. Where does Paul begin? Look at verses 24 and 25 with me. Verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is almost certainly the best place that we ought to start with our neighbors. That is, we ought to start by talking about the fact that God's the creator who spoke the entire universe into existence. Therefore, he's astonishingly creative, astonishingly powerful, and he's in charge of everything. It's not, most of your neighbors think the universe is a fix. The fixed item has always been there, and God's like out here outside the universe, and if there is a God at all, he might intervene occasionally. What they need to understand is that God is fixed. God is the one who has being in himself, and the entire universe is open before him. But he's the creator and the governor of all things. This one truth makes clear a great deal about the God with whom they must give an account. Now, Paul started with the altar to the unknown God as a point of contact, but he is quickly laying the axe to the totality of Greek religion. Um, The Areopagus would have been meeting in the shadow of the Parthenon, that magnificent, beautiful temple to Athena. Paul says, you know, God doesn't dwell in buildings made by human hands, right? God isn't like that. We dwell in his world. He doesn't dwell in the things that we mere humans happen to make. And you know how you imagine that your gods get hungry and you feed them when you offer your sacrifices? The true God never gets hungry, and he certainly doesn't need you to feed him. In fact, he doesn't need anything from you. All things are from him. This is a foundational truth about God that Paul declares to the court, the living God is the creator of all things. At this point, the philosophers, but as the Epicureans and the Stoics, are probably still with Paul, at least in part. They're probably still willing to tolerate him and hear a bit more of what they have to say, what he has to say. Uh, They, after all, understood the silliness of filling the city with altars and temples. But, beloved, the Apostle Paul is an equal opportunity offender. So he tells them more about the Lord. There is going to be a division among them between those who believe, those who are interested in hearing more, and those who flatly reject Paul and his message. And I want you to realize that that's going to be true if we share the gospel with people too. I think sometimes when we approach sharing the gospel with people, we try to figure out in advance whether it's reasonable that this person will accept what we have to say. But if you're going to share the gospel faithfully with people, you have to count on the fact that some of them will reject you, some of them will mock you, some of them may just be curious, and you may have planted a seed that will grow to fruition a year or a decade from now. But by the grace of God, some will believe. We should expect the same divided response that Paul will receive as he presses more and more truth upon them. Look at verses 26 through 28 with me. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. One scholar points out, that Paul is treading a fine line here between demonstrating familiarity with their own culture 
inviting Stoics to come on board with what he is saying and offering something quite new and revolutionary for them. Um, Let me just pause and say, thankfully, we don't have to be as brilliant as Paul to present the gospel. Um, We have a lot to learn from the way Paul's doing it here, but we do not have to be as brilliant and culturally attuned as Paul is. One of the things that comforts me a great deal in the Bible comes from 2 Kings, when a little servant girl, at her word, Naaman, the head of the entire Syrian army, moves from Syria to meet with Elisha to hear about God. I'm not going to be as eloquent or as gifted as Elisha or as the Apostle Paul, but surely I can say as much as a servant girl, and Almighty God can use that as well. And the same is true with you. Nevertheless, it is useful for us, at least after the fact, after Paul gave the speech, to try to grasp what Paul was doing. Uh, One of the things that happens here when Paul says, God is made from one man, all of humanity, is he's laying the axe at the root of racism. It's silly to talk about racism when we're all members of one family. All coming from Adam, and regrettably, all falling falling into sin with him. Where did human beings come from? God made us. Where did all the tribes, tongues, and nations come from? God made us all from one man. Now, some Christians today seem to be embarrassed by the idea that God made us all from one man. The Apostle Paul is not someone who feels like he ought to apologize for the living God. And I want to encourage you that you ought not to apologize for the living God either. And did you notice that Paul is advancing a ramification of God being our creator in these verses. Our creator determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Uh, That is, the God whom Paul was declaring didn't just wind up the clock and let it run. He's actually determining where people are going to live, what the borders of the nations are. He's coming closer and closer to the Epicureans and the Stoics and saying, This God is not just an idea, and he's not far away. He actually governs the affairs of human beings. Paul is tightening his grip. This God whom Paul is proclaiming is a God that we cannot simply choose to ignore. Now, part of the point of the general revelation, according to Paul, remember he's quoting their poets, he's looking for another point of contact here, But part of the point is that God gave people enough knowledge of his existence that we should seek after him. Now, you're going to have to read Romans 1 to discover why we don't. It's not because we don't have knowledge. It's because we suppress that knowledge. We hate that knowledge. We suppress it and exchange the truth for a lie, and we, by nature, fallen nature, worship the creature rather than the creator. Paul doesn't want to do that here. Paul's not interested in having a philosophical discussion about general revelation. Paul wants to get them to Jesus Christ. And we ought to too. When you're sharing the gospel, please be careful not to get involved in arguments that aren't going to get to Jesus Christ. It will do you no good to convince your unbelieving neighbor of amillennialism or premillennialism or postmillennialism. It really won't. What they need to know is God as he has revealed himself in the one and only Savior of mankind. Once again, Paul finds a point of contact in their culture by quoting one of their own poets. At this point, many of the Epicureans must be feeling a bit uneasy. They believe in a distant and uninvolved set of gods. Gods will allow them to go on their merry way with their lives doing whatever they want. But Paul is declaring an involved God who is not very far from any of us. Indeed, we are his offspring. Now when Paul quotes the pagan poet there about we are his offspring, he's not saying that we're all children of God in the sense we're adopted as God's God's family in Jesus Christ. He's simply pointing out that God is our origin And I think he's pointing to the fact that we're created in God's image 
by what he says next. In fact, he explicitly draws that connection in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now that Paul has painted the canvas with broad strokes, declaring the truth about God and the truth about men, he brings his hearers to a point of crisis. By the way, that will always take place when you're sharing the gospel. There's going to be a point where people either have to go yes or no. Paul brings them to a genuine crisis in verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, God didn't overlook the Gentiles like he was uninterested in them. It's just that the Lord's plan of salvation involved one man, Abraham, and then his family, and then it spread, and then the Jews. And until the fullness of time would come, God was primarily at work in terms of redemption, in terms of a little strip of land and this small group of people in Israel. But with the coming of Christ and with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we have the birth of the Catholic Church. And now God is spreading his kingdom to the ends of the world, and so we're going out and bringing the best news that can ever be told. But when we bring that news, we bring a crisis because people have to decide. Are they for this Jesus, or are they against him? See, Paul has made clear that this God whom he is proclaiming, since he is our creator, has an absolute right to judge us. And since he is near and involved with creation, he is likely to judge us. Now Paul declares that this God will most certainly judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The question then, since God is going to judge us, is how can we possibly be vindicated? Clearly Paul intends to talk further about the man Christ Jesus, whom God has appointed to his right hand, giving him all authority in heaven and on earth. But it seems that at this point, the conversation gets broken up. Uh, People start criticizing him and mocking him, but others are saying, you know, we're interested in this, we'd like to hear more. As I think about this passage, I'm actually intrigued quite a bit by Paul's approach. It's not an approach that I take. I'm not sure what you normally do when you share the gospel with people, but I usually start with, I want them to see that they're sinners, And I want to present Christ as Savior. You notice that's not what Paul does. Paul's going to get there. He's hoping to get there. But Paul begins by presenting Jesus as Lord, the one to whom they have to give an account. So rather than dealing with all these individual sins, the matter becomes simply this. Will you bow the knee to this one to whom you must give account? Because this is the one by whom God will judge every person on the face of the earth. I think I need to get busy trying that. Most of our neighbors have probably heard that Jesus has died for their sins, or better, that Jesus died for the sins of his people. They've heard this many times in their lives, and we ought to keep saying it. It is important that we talk about Jesus dying for the sins of his people, by all means. But they've heard it. They don't know who this God is, and they don't know who Jesus is, and they don't think of themselves as sinners, and this doesn't grab their hearts. Perhaps we need to confront them with the fact that one day every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And they'd better get right with him now before it's too late. That may be a little bit of a harder thing for us emotionally to present people with, but in a very diplomatic way, That is precisely what Paul is doing. What was the response that Paul received? Verses 32 through 34. 
Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. By the way, calling a, a man the Areopagite is saying he's one of the members there. Imagine going to the court and you're giving the profession of your faith and one of the judges becomes a believer. I think that's actually pretty good news. Uh, it isn't surprising that when Paul brought up the resurrection of the dead, that this would lead to mockery, though, by some. After all, most Greek philosophers, if they thought about the afterlife at all, they weren't thinking about an embodied afterlife. They actually thought that the better thing was for your spirit to be freed from this body. They even sometimes talked about the human body as the tomb of the soul. And so the very idea that the God who created everything has appointed a physical human being to be the judge of everything, and not only is he a physical human being, but this good person died and then was raised again physically, well, that just didn't fit within their worldview. Now, please note that for all of his tact and cultural sensitivity, Paul does not change the message to what would make sense within their pagan philosophy. Let me say that again. For all his tact and cultural sensitivity, Paul did not alter the message so that it would make sense within their pagan philosophy. See, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. As we tell people about who God is and who Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is at work. And even though it doesn't fit their preconceived ideas about God in the world, God is at work, and sometimes he opens people's hearts and causes them to be born again and gives them new life, and they believe. Even one of the Areopagus judges did that along with a woman of some note, and others as well. We have a lot to learn from tonight's passage about how to present this message wisely as well in what is increasingly a post-Christian age. But we should never lose sight of the fact that the same Christ who gives us the Great Commission also gives us this promise. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We do not proclaim Christ with confidence in our eloquence or our schemes. We proclaim Christ with confidence in our Savior and our God. Amen.